It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There is no evidence as yet that removing asylum seekers to Rwanda would actually have the desired effect of halting the traffic of small boats into the UK altogether. Welcome to Political Fix, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Lucy Fisher. The FT's William Wallace there, talking about the Supreme Court ruling that the government's Rwanda plan is unlawful. We'll come back to William a bit later. Also coming up, a pretty seismic week in politics. A Home Secretary sacked, a flagship government policy seemingly in tatters, and a major Labour rebellion. And to discuss all that, I'm joined by my FT colleague Stephen Bush, Hello, Stephen. Hi, Lucy. And George Parker. Hi, George. Hello, Lucy. So, a week full of twists and turns got off to a pretty surprising start. The return of former Prime Minister David Cameron to Cabinet, despite not currently having a seat in the House of Commons. Here's how David, now Lord Cameron, described what he will bring to Rishi Sunak's government. I can help the Prime Minister to make sure we build our alliances, we build partnerships with our friends, we deter our enemies and we keep our country strong. That's why I'm doing the job and I'm delighted to accept. George, you're a veteran parliament watcher. How unusual is this move? Well, it's extremely unusual to have a prime minister returning to the cabinet in this way. I think you have to go back to Alec Douglas Hume. Don't you? Was that the last yeah. Yeah. prime minister who came back as a... In as Heath's a, cabinet. As, yes, back in the nineteen early 1970s. So it's a once in a two-generation event in so many respects. And you could see the look of astonishment from the journalists lined up in Downing Street as the car came down Downing Street and David Cameron came out. So it's, it's extremely unusual. I think if anybody needed a second act in their political career, it is David Cameron. The events leading up to his defenestration as Prime Minister in 2016, notably the Brexit referendum, and the events subsequently, the lobbying scandals, the involvement in a UK-China investment fund, all of those things have basically tarnished his reputation as Prime Minister. And you could tell he's itching to get back on the front line and do some remedial work. But as you point out, sir, he comes with a lot of baggage, doesn't he? Is this a bit of a risk, do you think, Stephen, for Rishi Sunak to bring, bring him in? So one of these I realised this week is I'm clearly actually the number one David Cameron apologist <laughs> left in British political journalism. Because one, I don't think it is a risk because they are already polling at about a quarter of, of the vote, true. right? Uh, at this point they need to do something to try and change the, their trajectory because their trajectory at the is not just defeat, but, you know, potentially the end. But also, yes, is his premiership ended poorly, to put it mildly. Yes, we, we are still living with many of the consequences of the decisions taken from 2010 to 2016. Yes, his post-premiership career has a number of blights on it, many of which have been very well reported by the FT. But... Is this the apology bit? <laughs> this is the apology. But one, we, we shouldn't forget that 
uh, politically and electorally speaking, he is the most successful conservative leader since the fall of the Berlin Wall. You don't have to knock on very many doors in the stockbroker belt, in the areas the Lib Dems are now menacing the Conservatives. To hear people who were once reliably conservative voters, you say something like, yeah, we need a change, don't we? I suppose I'll vote for Keir Starmer. God, what wouldn't I give for David Cameron to come back? And when you consider the the problems Rishi Sunak has and he can't fix, right? He can't invent time travel and not have had Liz Truss become prime minister. He can't make the problems in the public services be fixed by the time of the next election. There is no painless way through the United Kingdom's economic difficulties. But the one thing he could do was bring back a person who, who is still more popular than the Conservative Party, is more popular than Rishi Sunak now is, and hope that that at the least gets that type of voter who used to be a reliable part of the Conservative coalition to go, actually, Joel, maybe I won't vote Lib Dem next year. Maybe I won't reluctantly vote for Keir Starmer. Maybe I will come home to the Conservative Party. I'm not saying that it will work, but I think on paper it it, it makes a lot of sense. Rishi Sunak could use someone who displays basic political instincts at the top of his team. As I would say, the weird fact that he came back, yeah, that he's brought back Cameron a little bit over a month after saying... I don't like the last 30 years. Well, that's it, isn't it? It is a massive gear change, George, isn't it? From saying that, you know, he's part of the failed consensus. Labour leapt on that uh, immediately as soon as David Cameron's appointment was confirmed when people were still incredulous after seeing him walk up Downing Street. So there is that sort of awkwardness uh, for Sunak that he seems to be ditching that narrative, but also potentially ditching his commitment to the Red Wall, because that's another sort of fallout we've seen from his appointment, isn't it? People think this is the return of the centrists. This is the sort of the march of the one nation conservatives, this reshuffle. And he's upset quite a lot of his backbenchers that he now faces a pretty vicious attack from. Look, if Rishi Sunak has a political strategy, it's pretty hard to spot it, I would say, (laughs) unless it's simply throwing spaghetti at the wall and (laughs) hoping some of it's going to stick. I mean, you're right. I mean, how can you make the centrepiece of your party conference speech a denunciation of 30 years of failed politics and the status quo and then reappoint someone who was your predecessor, you know, a few years back and was prime minister for six of those 30 years? It is literally incredible. If you're presenting yourself as the change leader, as Rishi Sunak is doing, then how can you bring back David Cameron? And you saw this week the sort of the wild veering in the last 10 days between the policies which you might loosely say are designed to appeal to the red wall and then the appointment of David Cameron, which, as Stephen was saying, is designed presumably to help shore up the blue wall. In the run-up to David Cameron's appointment, you had Rishi Sunak leaning in, frankly, to the Suella Braverman narrative about the protests and, you know, calling the head of the police in to complain about it. And then within 48 hours of David Cameron's appointment and all of us writing about this shift back to the centre, Rishi Sunak was in Downing Street talking about, in the context of the Rwanda ruling, the possibility of leaving or hinting at leaving the European Convention of Human Rights. I mean, the policy and the strategy seems to me at the moment all over the place. And the reshuffle has been, you know, well chewed over now. Stephen, just a word from you on what else stuck out. What, what are you still thinking about from what happened on Monday? To follow up on what George said, the thing which has stuck out for me is the return of that very old trick among conservative politicians, which is when they realise late on in a reshuffle they need to get something hmm. to help the right step forward 
a nebulous role for Esther McVeigh attending cabinet, a role she held with distinction under both Theresa May and David Cameron. And I thought actually Esther McVeigh being brought back into government in that capacity spoke again to that lack of coherence. This right? is in being the, a minister of common sense. Yeah, minister of, and it was a real kind of like mm. this thing where exactly as Jules said, that if there is a strategy in Downing Street, it is not remotely clear what it is, what its through line is. And I think that this was the reshuffle which brought back both David Cameron and Esther McVeigh, I think is the thing which kind of summarises where the Rishi Sunak project is Mm. right now. Even the timing of it, George, it happened quite late in the day after there'd been a lot of noises off from uh, some of the right of the party saying, you know, this is is a rout, this is a purge of our folks. I I slightly wondered whether it had been a move that was on on the whiteboard at the beginning of the day, (laughs) hastily cobbled together to to assuage Mm. that narrative. Can I just ask you briefly about Suella Braverman? Hmm. What do you make of her uh, departure, sacking this week, and her very vicious letter attacking Rishi Sunak after her exit? Well, I'd say that Suella Braverman played a useful purpose for Rishi Sunak. First of all, helping him to get elected as Tory leader back in October 2022, coming on side, and then saying the kind of things that Rishi Sunak himself didn't really want to say but felt needed to be said to appeal to a certain segment of the electorate. But it was becoming increasingly obvious that she was going well off the reservation. She was saying things that no minister, let alone Rishi Sunak, could ever support in public. She appeared to be pursuing her her crusade for the Tory leadership from the front bench. And in the end, it was inevitable she had to go. I think the manner of her departure made it even less likely, frankly, that she will ever succeed in her ambition of replacing Rishi Sunak, because frankly, it was well over the top. The language was excessive. Someone close to Rishi Sunak said that the resignation was less Jeffrey Howe and more Nadine Doris, which I thought summed it up. And you could tell how few people actually, Tory MPs, were prepared to go out and support Suella Bravman or turn up at the New Conservatives, her caucus in the party. Maybe a dozen people turned up on the night she was sacked. So, you know, people in Downing Street are quite relieved about that. They said there's no army behind Suella Bravman. Mm. So I think she might sort of disappear into the background relatively quickly. You felt like she'd said too much in that parting letter, frankly. I think you're right. And and Stephen, George mentions this caucus, the New Conservatives, who've announced this week that they are going to now be organising within the party. They're going to be fundraising, recruiting uh, supporters to back their MPs, their candidates at the next election. Uh, Don't call us Tory momentum, uh, I'm told by insiders, but it does feel a, a bit like that, doesn't it? Just how much are they backing Suella? Because it feels to me slightly she needs them more than they need her. I think, to be honest, a lot of people don't really know who they're going to back. You're exactly right. A lot of ambitious politicians on the right can see that there is going to be in the next leadership election a slot for someone who essentially says, we lost because we didn't shout hard enough. We lost because we were too left-wing. So so, Suella Braverman's problem, exactly as George says, is that that letter... Essentially, all the things that allies of Pretty Patel, the other person who is fishing in that pool at the moment, all the things that, that Pretty Patel has said both privately and publicly about, yeah, okay, look, you might agree with what Suella says, but have you noticed that she never actually does anything? That was a letter in which, in addition to its intemperate language, basically said, Prime Minister, you made four promises to me. It would be obvious to a kitten who's just had a major cardiovascular incident that these these pledges weren't going to be made, and yet I was planning to stick around until you fired me. I think there is going to be an attempt, you know, to both recruit in the country and to move the party to the right in opposition. But I think that the questions over Suella Braverman's competence and 
everything she failed to do repelled authoritarian voters. And that's this is kind of the problem, is that although there is a sort of market demand for a politician a bit like Suella Braverman, there is a market demand, crucially, for a politician who is good and like Suella Braverman in the Conservative Party. I don't think and there's ever going to be a caucus to get someone to the final round of the Conservative leadership election whose, whose record is, is failure, to put it bluntly. Well, that brings us on neatly to the next topic, which is, of course, the government's setback with its efforts to deal with irregular migration, which was, of course, one of uh, Suella Braverman's key charges against Rishi Sunak, that he had betrayed his pledge to the nation to do whatever it takes to stop the small boats. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court ruled that the plan to remove asylum seekers to Rwanda was unlawful. Sunak quickly moved in with a plan B, but will it work? The FT's William Wallace has been following the case. Hello, William. Hello, Lucy. So uh, take us through this again briefly. What exactly has the Supreme Court ruled? Essentially, the ruling hinged on the Supreme Court's decision that Rwanda was not a safe place to send asylum seekers because it couldn't be trusted not to forcibly repatriate them to their countries of origin where they might be persecuted. And that would be in violation of international law. They drew on other evidence in their ruling, including that they'd been shown evidence that Rwanda could not be trusted to respect its commitments to international law and international treaties. Uh, And Rishi Sunak now says he's got a plan B, a new treaty with Rwanda. How will that work exactly? Well, the Supreme Court ruling also gave a tiny bit of wiggle room to the government by saying that should things change, the Rwanda policy could be lawful in the future. Rishi Sunak has taken this and he's now said he will do two things. One, he will and is in the process of renegotiating a treaty with the Rwandans that will be legally binding. The original agreement was just a memorandum of understanding which wasn't legally binding. In this, it would appear that the government is going to try and address some of the issues that the Supreme Court brought up, notably by committing Rwanda legally not to forcibly repatriate asylum seekers to their countries of origin. That's the first plank of what he's trying to do. He's also saying he will introduce emergency legislation, which will essentially deem, if it passes Parliament, that Rwanda is safe, contrary to what the Supreme Court has ruled. And so we've had Lord Sumption, a former Supreme Court justice, uh, call this plan constitutionally extraordinary. He says that what Sunak's essentially trying to do is legislate to change the facts, simply change the law to say that Rwanda is a safe third country. Uh, What do you make of his criticism of this? Well, I think that's where a lot of people from the legal profession are sitting today. And it has created some degree of shock because, like you say, essentially it looks like the government is trying to legislate to say something is black when the highest court in the country has actually said it's white. So that is bound to be very legally contentious. And it also raises the question of whether this policy can be put into operation without a whole new flurry of legal challenges. And remind us how Rwanda's responded to all this. Rwanda has uh, responded as it has uh, along the way in some of these court hearings uh, to say that ultimately the decision of the British courts, whether they allow this policy to go ahead, but that it it believes that it's wrong and it's hypocritical. And um, in fact, it it is a, a safe place. And they 
have been quite angered by the evidence that was brought by the UN's refugee agency, which informed the court's ruling. Well, William, stay with us. I want to bring uh, George and Stephen in. Uh, George, let's look at the politics of this. The Tory right aren't buying Sunak's plan B, are they? They're saying he's going to need to forge ahead with replacing the European Convention on Human Rights, the way that that is implemented on the UK statute book as the Human Rights Act with the British Bill of Rights. Yes, I mean, whatever Rishi Sunak says on the European Convention of Human Rights is never going to be enough to satisfy someone the right who would like Britain to basically pull out of the Convention on Human Rights. And Rishi Sunak finds himself again in a precarious position caught between the right who take this very absolutist view that you shouldn't have a foreign court interfering in our domestic law and people on the left of the party representing many of the blue wall seats who think it's absolutely outrageous the idea that we could find ourselves disregarding parts of the ECHR or pulling out of the ECHR completely and putting ourselves in the company of Russia and Belarus. And so as a consequence, you had what I think was a fairly effective bit of media management by Rishi Sunak in coming up with this emergency legislation, which actually got quite favourable headlines in most of the papers, actually, the day after this announcement. But as William was just describing, them, when you look at it, really what he's done is he's kicking this into the long grass. There's going to be extended legal challenges. Nobody's going to go on a plane to Rwanda. No asylum seeker is going to go on a plane to Rwanda before the next general election. And this issue will be hanging over the Tory party as an unresolved question future of Britain and the ECHR right through to polling day. And just to pick up on that that key point uh, that George has made, William and, and then you, Stephen, do you agree with that? Do you think that we will see flights to Rwanda happening before the next election? Sunak said he wants to see them you know, in the air by the spring. I think it's highly unlikely. I think his announcements in the last 24 hours keep the Rwanda policy vaguely in contention, but it doesn't make it likely that the government will be able to put it into operation anytime soon nor that it could go through without the UK getting snarled up in a whole fresh range of legal challenges. There are, there are one or two dissenting views on the legal side who support the government and think there is a path through that the new treaty would deal with the court's concerns that the Rwanda government would send people back to their country of origin by legally ruling that out, and then that the emergency legislation would essentially rule out challenges on the grounds of domestic law. Those views are pretty rare, and you can see that it is going to be a great big bun fight uh, along the way. There is, as yet, no evidence that the policy of sending uh, asylum seekers to Rwanda will actually have the required effect of stopping small boats from crossing the channel into the UK. Stephen, are you also sceptical? Yeah, I'm very dubious, and it will get through Parliament. It was not in the 2019 manifesto, so the House of Lords can block Mm. it. So um, the reason why under Theresa May, the government was finally able to deport Abu Qatada, who was accused of fomenting terrorism and supporting Jesus and all sorts of, of other things, was that they were able to sign a legally binding accord with Jordan to say that he wouldn't be tortured, which meant that it became compliant with the UK's obligations under human rights law. So you can see how it is in theory possible that you sign something with the Rwandan government where you effectively say, well, if you are sent to Rwanda um, because you're trying to seek asylum in the UK, the Rwandan government promises to have a higher standard of freedom for you than refugees who come to Rwanda organically and indeed, many would argue, ordinary Rwandan citizens, full stop. However, I think that's going to be quite a difficult argument to sell to the House of Lords. Um, and And I just therefore can't see how it would get through the House of Lords quickly enough, if at all, let alone 
the inevitable legal tests of whether or not that that legally binding new treaty were, you know, were fine. And I just, yeah, I just don't think it will happen this side Mm. of the election. Well, it's pretty worrying then, George, for the party, isn't it? We've heard Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, say that, you know, they cannot afford to fail. He said, I don't see a path to victory at the next election unless we resolve this issue. There is this sense that immigration is now almost existential for the Conservative Party. And perhaps that's why we heard the, to my mind, utterly extraordinary intervention from Lee Anderson, vice chair of the Tory party, no less, essentially urging Sunak to ignore the judgment, ignore the law and press ahead with getting those flights going anyway. Well, again, I mean, this just goes to the heart of the mixed messaging we were talking about earlier. You know, this is the party of law and order whose vice chair is going out publicly and saying, we should choose which laws of the land we wish to obey. I mean, it's if you step stop and think about it, it's absolutely absurd. And you know, of course, Rishi Sunak has made uh, stopping the boats one of his five key pledges. The boats aren't going to stop, although to Sunak's credit, there has been some cut in the number of people crossing the channel this year. He says it's down by a third, but nevertheless, it's going to remain as an issue. And you can see from looking at the opinion polling, it remains one of the top three issues for the voters. And the fact it's unresolved, the fact that the Rwanda policy has been their flagship response to this and looks like it will be unresolved in the next election, plainly that's a problem for the Tories. William, final question to you. We've heard from some MPs, I'm thinking in particular of Natalie Elphick, the Tory MP for Dover, you know, very much on the front line of this small boats crisis and and the arrivals. She said the Rwanda policy dead in the water now, the government should move on and seek a new solution. You know, you cover home affairs, you're very well versed in all the debate around irregular migration. Is there anything else you can see the government doing aside from pursuing these legal avenues to to forge ahead with the Rwanda policy? I don't think anyone thinks that it's an easy problem to solve. There probably are always going to be some people crossing uh, the channel by boat. But what another way of approaching it might be to to pursue much more rigorously better relations with the French, have processing centers on the other side of the channel, have better relations and returns agreements with more countries, notably with the European Union, something we used to have but no longer do. And then on this side of the channel, we should be processing asylum seekers' claims much more rapidly, determining who's eligible, who isn't, and removing those who aren't something that has, you know, almost dried up in recent years. So there are ways of doing it without creating these legally tricky policies like the Rwanda policy. William Wallace, thanks for joining. It's not just the government's team that looks different at the end of this week than it did at the beginning. Labour has also lost 10 of its shadow front benches, who quit their roles in order to vote in favour of a ceasefire in Gaza. George, how serious is this rebellion for Keir Starmer? Well, it's sheer scale, it's serious. You know, to have more than 50 Labour MPs voting against the government line is on the face of it extremely serious, and it's the biggest blow to Keir Starmer's authority so far. But, and I would say there's a, a big but, this is a very self-contained issue. It's an issue where plainly a lot of MPs feel they they feel they have to vote with their conscience on this. A lot of them will have um, Muslim constituents who are extremely upset about what's going on in Gaza, evidently. And I think... Keir Starmer can probably, you know, it's damaging, but I think he can basically brush this off. He will say that he's asserted his authority over his party. He's insisted that people should resign if they can't toe the line on this. And I think for him, strategically, it was important to show that he was prepared to hold this line and take a a line consistent with 
the British government's current position and indeed what the Americans are doing. I think that's the big strategic challenge he was facing, and I think he felt he had to stick to it. Stephen, uh, not that many uh, high-profile names amongst the front benches uh, who rebelled and, and therefore resigned, apart from perhaps Jess Phillips, uh, the shadow minister previously for domestic violence and safeguarding. Um, quite a loss for Keir Starmer and, and, and some around him lamenting her departure. Do you see a way back before the election or even after it for some of the people that have had to quit in order, as George said, follow their conscience, as they put it? I mean, all of the people who've resigned will be back probably by the end of the year. Uh, <laughs> I, in fact, I, actually, here, here's a bet I feel fairly comfortable in making. On the last day of the before you know, December recess, which I think is the 22nd of December, a press release will arrive in all our inboxes and it will be Keir Starmer has appointed the following people to the front bench, someone else will get moved in order to make it look like it, it isn't just the 10 names coming back. We shouldn't forget that, you know, uh, thanks to Jeremy Corbyn, Boris Johnson, and arguably to Keir Starmer a little bit, there are very few Labour MPs, right? To the point that there are MPs who are retiring who are on the Labour front bench. Uh, so uh, this is the second time that Sarah Owen has re- resigned from the front bench. She resigned over spy cops, ditto Dan Cardens. Remind us who Sarah Owen is. So Sarah Owen is the MP for one of the Luton constituencies. I always get my norths and my souths <laughs> confused, as has Rachel Hopkins, the other Luton MP. Dan Carden, MP for Liverpool, uh, I want to say Walton, but uh, angry listeners should feel free to tell me how silly I am. He resigned over spy cops. He he'll will be back. Ditto, so will Jess Phillips. Um, the bigger question with this um, rebellion is, does this have a longer-run electoral cost in the seats where they're, where they're competitive with the Greens, Brighton Pavilion, where Caroline Lucas's retirement gives them a once-in-a-generation opportunity to maybe take it back? Mm. Uh, Bristol, where Thangham Debonair, their shadow uh, culture secretary will face a very serious challenge from the Green leader, Carla Denier. What does it mean for the Labour-SNP battleground? Now, because if those battles go poorly for the Labour Party, I think the Labour Party will then struggle with some of the quite difficult votes on the welfare cap, et cetera, et cetera, because MPs will be worried that if they don't stick to their left, it will happen to them. But obviously, that's a very long time in the future. And I just want to turn to one more topic. Next week, it's going to be another news-packed seven days, I expect, the highlight of which we think at this point will be the autumn statement on Wednesday. George, just give us a sense of the backdrop economically to this and what we should be watching out for. Well, I think there are two statistics which would frame this autumn statement. The first one, which is more of a forecast by the Bank of England, is that the British economy is going to flatline all the way through election year 2024 and into 2025. So Jeremy Hunt's first objective is to deliver an autumn statement which generates economic growth. The second one are the opinion polls, which show the Conservatives at least 20 points behind Labour, sometimes 24, even 25 points behind Labour. So not only does he have a massive economic challenge, he has a political challenge, which is to find ways of spending money to try to deliver tax cuts, which could give a jolt to the Tory electoral fortunes. And I think that's the big question facing the Chancellor. He'll have a bit more money to spend. His so-called fiscal headroom will be bigger than previously thought. He'll have some money for tax cuts. How much does he devote to business tax cuts to get the economy growing? And how much does he devote to retail personal tax cuts, for example, cuts to inheritance tax to get the Tory poll ratings up. Stephen, what's your guess on on that uh, dilemma that George has set out? Yeah, I think, well, in numerical terms, most of the action will be on the getting the economy moving. And I think really the retail offer will, will almost certainly be solely focused on inheritance tax. But obviously taken together, that is going to be possibly not a political challenge for the Labour Party, but quite a policy challenge for the Labour Party, because they 
rightly want to stick for strategic reasons to saying they would not deviate from spending limits, but they're already inheriting quite a tight spending round. And uh, if quite a lot of that money goes on inheritance tax and things to uh, stimulate the economy, then that will put all of those questions we had over, you know, whether or not they keep the two-child limit, all of that will come back to the fore, I think. Well, we'll be back next week to discuss the detail in full. There's just time now for the political fix stock picks. Stephen, who are you buying or selling this week? So I'm actually going to sell um, James Cleverly, which might seem a bit counterintuitive, but yeah, ultimately he's just become you know the first black person to be Home Secretary ever. He's the in the box seat for the kind of establishment slot in the Conservative leadership race. But the Home Office has, with the exception of Theresa May, been the graveyard of leadership ambitions for, across all parties for a very long time. He's inherited, a, these are very much my words, not his, a bunch of, I think, stupid and unachievable pledges in that area. So I, I think that, you know, although he's still in a good position, he faces a very difficult political challenge to maintain that that strong position he has. And he may end up just as with Pretty Patel, Suella Braverman, Sajid Javid, Amber Rudd, another person who came into the Home Office, talked of as a future leader who left it via the back. On that happy note, George, who are you buying or selling? Well, damn, that was exactly word for word <laughs> what I was about to say, Lucy, because I totally agree with Stephen. I mean, I'm poor old James Cleverly from sort of parading around the chanceries of the world as a as a leading statesman having to deal with the mess of the Rwanda policy. Poor James Cleverly. And I think he did a good job at the Foreign Office. Um, who shall I go for? Well, look, I mean, I'm going to sell Suella Braverman, as previously discussed. I think she's, she's burnt herself out with a very ill-advised departure letter. And I think that she will disappear into the Tory backbenches in much in the same way that Priti Patel did when she left the Home Office. Well, I'm going to buy Nigel Farage, who's out in the jungle now. I did dip my toe into I'm a celebrity, uh, get me out of here during uh, Matt Hancock's uh, turn. I don't think I can quite face uh, any more uh, kangaroo genitals uh, being chewed. But I think it is a chance for Farage to uh, approach a new audience and maybe change some people's perception of him. And I do think Cameron's return, as we've been discussing this week, leaves a bit of a vacuum on the right that the Reform UK party uh, might have some luck trying to fill. George, Stephen, thanks for joining. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Lucy. And that's it for this episode of the FT's Political Fix. I've put links to subjects discussed in this episode in the show notes, so do check them out. They're articles we've made free for Political Fix listeners. There's also a link there to Stephen's award-winning Inside Politics newsletter. You'll get 30 days free. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. Plus, do leave a review or a star rating. It really helps spread the word. Political Fix was presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and produced by Audrey Tinlin. Manuela Saragossa is the executive producer. Andrew Jordardis and Petros Yumbasis were the broadcast engineers. Original music and sound engineering by Breen Turner. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. We'll meet again here next week. <laughs>